Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. So beautiful and weird. So, it's June, which I feel like is the month of everybody getting married. It's Mm -hmm. when we got married. We actually just celebrated our anniversary. Six years. Six years. It feels like it's been forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you said And already a lifetime. (laughs) And many more lifetimes to come. (laughs) I'm glad you say that, though, too, because it does feel like it's been a long time. It feels like we've been together for a very long time. Yeah. So. But, But, I mean, still things are still good. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, hopefully. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I can't lose my podcast co-host. Yeah. So Got to keep it together for that. Right. And we uh, actually got married on Flag Day because, of course, we did. Yeah. That is... <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know it was Flag Day when I picked the date. And then Jeremy brought it up and he wanted our wedding colors to be red, white, and blue. And I said, no, I did not. So we went with <laughs> Tuscany and Navy. Yeah. <laughs> Tuscany red and navy. Yeah. <laughs> but so congratulations to all the people that are that are getting married this month and to all those people that I feel like also share this month for anniversaries cuz it right. seems like there's a lot of them according well, to my Facebook. Well, especially if they're able to have weddings. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places that are still really restricting who can who can attend and how many people can attend. And right. A lot of the weddings that are going on right now are very, very small. small. Yeah. But yeah. still, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> love is in the air. We, yeah, we love it. And then if you didn't know, Jeremy is actually an ordained minister. Yes, I am. And so if anybody wants Jeremy to perform your wedding. Yeah, wedding ceremonies... You can actually purchase that on our website, AmericanBazaar.com. <laughs> yeah, so check it out. Check it out. I love, I love, I love going to weddings and seeing people get married. Yeah, I cry almost every time. He does. It's very sweet, though. Yeah, it's, I'm a beautiful crier. <laughs> yeah, so I married you. <laughs> All right, this week's presidential trivia: mm-hmm. Which president was the first president to call the White House the White House? Ooh. Yeah. I have a guess. What's your guess? George. George? <laughs> okay. George. The first George? Mm-hmm. The George. The George. Okay. Well, the answer will be at the end of the episode, so stay ah. tuned. All right. So this week we're going to make me wait to find out. Yeah, absolutely. I always <laughs> I make you wait. That's true. So this week we're going to talk about planes. Okay. And uh so you actually kind of started to get your pilot's license. Yeah, I had a few hours behind the stick. Uh took lessons my last year of college. This it's terrifying at first, and then it was really fun. Like when you realize that the plane just bounces a lot up in the air because all the thermals and everything. Right, and it's like a little plane yeah. that you were in. Yeah, yeah, it was a tiny plane. It was a Piper Cherokee, uh, which is different different than what most people think of it. 
most people, when they think of little planes, they think of like a Cessna high wing. You know, you can see the structure, the braces coming out from underneath the doors and stuff. Right. And this one was a low wing, so it looked more like a like a World War II uh, fighter jet, you know? Nice. Yeah. nice. Kind of. Not really, but kind of. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's what I felt like when I was in it. <laughs> well, anyways... The Wright brothers had their first successful flight with their aircraft on December 17, 1903. So when World War I broke out in 1914, just 11 years later, planes were still very new to the world. Yeah. And to call the Wright brothers aircraft a plane is also kind of a stretch. A stretch. So actually, like, engine-powered planes were very new Mm -hmm. when World War I started. Right. But, yeah, they, weren't they still using primarily like hot air balloons and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> like really? Like for like aerial surveillance and yeah, stuff? Yeah. 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 So um, even though they were still new, um, the start of World War One caused planes to, uh, or like plane technology to. R&D was just. Absolutely. It was just going. The, for, the forefront of everybody's, all the manufacturers. Right. And soon aircraft was integrated into warfare. Right. Pretty quickly. Into the military industrial complex. Yes. So, but nearing the end of the war, the army was having planes mass produced across the United States. And the most popular of these was the Curtis JN-4. It was a simple plane with fixed wheels, a wooden tail skid, and just two seats. The plane had a 90-horsepower engine that let the plane hit speeds of 75 miles per hour, climb to about 11,000 feet, and stay airborne for about two hours. Nice. Yeah. All right, so first of all, wooden skid. Yes. Sketchy. Very sketchy. Super sketchy. Didn't want to put a wheel on that one. <laughs> um, also, 90 horsepower. I think that has more horsepower than my Dodge Dakota did in high school. Nice. So, and that well, was built good. in 2003, yeah. so I'm pretty impressed by this plane. After World War One, the United States had a ton of these planes left over. Yeah. And decided to make some extra cash by selling them to civilians. Any American citizen could purchase a JN-4 for $300, oh, which man. in today's money is a little over $4,000. Got it. I Still bet that was a, a pretty reasonable price for a plane. 4000 in today's dollars? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Very reasonable. Also, probably a hell of a lot less regulations. Oh, yeah. So you had to have a, pl- a license to fly it. like Right. Yeah, you just kind of bought it and then flew it. Yeah. That was all you had to do. But yeah, it's cheaper than most cars. It was definitely cheaper than brand new cars. Back in the And day. some of these planes were like still in their shipping Christine containers. Shape. Yeah, they yeah. had never been flown before. Yeah. So these people were getting a deal. So if I ever time travel, I'm going back to... What year? Like 1918 yeah. probably is a good bet. Hmm. Just in time for the Roaring 20s. Yeah. I should buy a plane and I can go travel to all the Roaring 20s parties. And I think a lot of people did that. <laughs> um, thousands of pilots were able to learn how to fly in one of these planes, including Amelia Earhart. Nice. Patrick Murphy was an Irish immigrant living in the United States in the 1920s. Not much is known about Murphy in his early life. He seems to just show up in Ardmore, Oklahoma, where he would visit the local bars, and if he drank enough whiskey, he would start singing songs about his homeland. Nice. They said depending on how much whiskey he drank, depending on if it was a happy song or a, a sad, sad song. song. Yeah. 
That like reminds me of watching uh, Peaky Blinders. Oh, I've been watching yeah. that on Netflix. And she's a gorgeous singer. <clears throat> she's singing all those songs from her home country and stuff. Yeah. So kind of like of. that, but probably not as nice. Yeah. <laughs> Murphy bought himself a small biplane that he would use to fly in air shows performing stunts, which they called barnstorming back then. Barnstorming? Yeah. <laughs> nice. And to also offer his services as a crop duster to farmers across the U.S. While in Alabama, Murphy was flying his plane with his plane's mechanic as his passenger. Murphy crashed the plane and the mechanic died, and Murphy severely injured his leg. Murphy was charged with manslaughter, but the charges were later dropped. Not wanting to stick around in Alabama after that, Murphy decided to get a move on with his plane and made his way to Arizona. Murphy got to Arizona in 1929, and he was completely broke. That's <laughs> just, just a man in his plane. Yep, he basically made it as far as his plane would take him. Oh, yeah. He tried to make money by offering joyrides to locals for $2 a ride. Unfortunately, Murphy quickly spent all that money on whiskey and then couldn't even afford gasoline to fuel his plane back up. <laughs> oh, no. So it's kind of like a catch-22. Yeah, yeah. Well, try and pour the whiskey in the plane and see yep. if that'll make it go. <laughs> While drinking some whiskey and getting ready to sing some tunes in a saloon in Bisbee, Arizona, Murphy overheard a discussion about the Escobar Rebellion that was happening just a few miles away across the Mexican border. <laughs> Murphy's friend mentioned to Murphy that him and a few of the other locals were going to, the, were going to go to the border to watch the fighting going on. The Escobar Rebellion started in Mexico when General Don Jose Gonzalo Escobar and other military officers were upset that a civilian with no military experience had been selected as a provisional president of Mexico. All of them thought that somebody with military experience should be president. Isn't that a, isn't that a thought? Yeah. <laughs> so, that used to be really popular in our country, too. It, it, yeah, I feel like, I mean, that's usually a huge selling point in somebody's candidacy yeah. if they are a veteran. Yeah. Or at least it used to be. Yeah. But they also used to be generals. Some of them, yeah. A lot of them were. Or like pretty high ranking, you know. So like they had yeah some higher strategic level. Yeah, it seemed like, you know, and it wasn't even that long ago that if you were a general, that was a good... Like a high general, ranking general. That was a good stepping stone to the presidency. So, after taking control of the city of Monterey, Escobar and his forces began to move north toward the Arizona-Sonora border. border, (laughs) Sonora border. Sonora (laughs) border. So that they could take control of the ports of entry between the U.S. and Mexico. So when Murphy and his friends got to the border town of Naco, Arizona, they were able to watch as the federal forces that were hunkered down in Naco, Sonora, try to keep out the rebel forces. So por- so apparently, both of these towns right on the border were both named Naco, because it's the last two letters of Arizona and the last two letters of Mexico mm. put together, and they decided to do. That's how they named it. That's how they named their towns. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody was like, this is a great idea. I was yeah. like, okay, I mean, it's not the greatest name, but yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't know, I like names like that. So, back to Murphy and his friends. They watched from on top of a boxcar. 
Some of the Americans watching brought their families and had picnic baskets packed and were making beds on where the next bomb would land. There was sometimes close to 200 people gathered at the border to watch the ensuing battle. Jeez. And apparently that actually was really popular during the Civil War, too. Yeah, people, people just go would just go on, pick, pack a picnic basket, and they'd go to a hillside, and they just watch the battle. Huh. Just bring your kids and watch a whole bunch of people die. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Fun afternoon. Yeah. So. Johnny, take a nap so we can go <laughs> to the battlefield this afternoon. Yeah. Parents today still say the same thing, but there's nobody shooting at each other usually. Usually. So both the both the Mexican federal and rebel forces were careful to not let any of the fighting spill into the United States so that America wouldn't get involved. Nobody in Mexico wanted the Americans to get involved. But the occasional stray bullet would make its way close to where Murphy and his friends were watching. But not enough to... Nobody Scare ever got off. hurt yet. Yeah. Because they wanted to keep drumming up American sympathy and support, the rebels would often wait until nightfall when all of the American patrons had left the Mexican businesses and gone back over the border before they would attack. Hmm. One night, the rebels filled an abandoned train rail car with dynamite and tried to send it down the tracks into Naco, hoping to catch the highly flammable wood and adobe buildings on fire. Unfortunately for the rebels, the rail car derailed, crashed, and exploded before getting into the Federal Forces populated downtown area. Mm. Murphy, however, was enthralled with the rebels' fighting tactics and began to create his own plan on how he could get into the action. He's going to be the first plane in the Mexico Air Force. Two days later, Murphy <laughs> was in Mexico visiting with General Escobar. Murphy told Escobar that for $3,000, he would build three bombs and drop them onto the federal forces in NACO using his plane. Yes. Escobar talked Murphy down to $1,000 and agreed to his plan. <laughs> yeah, but at that point, I'd make him supply the bombs. Escobar? Yeah. No, he's like, yeah, you know, you're still, I don't even know who you are. Yeah. You're just this drunk guy from America. America. Yeah. I mean, $1,000 back then is still... Yeah. Could have bought three more planes with it. Yeah, exactly. So Escobar then hired a couple other pilots to do the same thing, American pilots. He was like, actually, that's a pretty good idea. And the federal forces then heard about this and caught on and also hired their own American pilots to bomb the rebel forces. Oh, man. Murphy went back to Arizona and got to work creating the bombs by filling iron pipes with dynamite, scrap iron, nails, and bolts. In order to make them easier to carry, he placed the bombs into leather suitcases and five-gallon gasoline cans, with strip fuses sticking out. On March 31, 1929, Murphy flew to Mexico, showed General Escobar his bombs, and then got back into his plane to drop the bombs on the Federal forces. Murphy dropped the first two bombs by first lighting the fuses with a cigar and then tossing them out of the plane. (laughs) But neither of them exploded. Murphy decided to make adjustments to the third bomb before dropping it to make sure that this one would go off. On April 1st, 1929, Murphy made his second run and dropped the third bomb. This bomb went off, but instead of hitting the federal forces, the bomb hit the customs building on the Mexican side of the border, and the only damage it did was spray the people watching the fighting from the American border with some dirt and debris. When that happened, Murphy could see all of the American patrons 
in the Mexican bars running back over the border to watch the bombings in safety. <laughs> After both of these runs, Murphy would meet up with an American pilot working for the Federal Forces, and they would have some drinks back in the U.S. and talk about their bomb runs. So he's literally just friends with the Federal Forces pilots. Yeah. Like, oh, we're all just, we're all just mercenaries, here, yeah. basically. Oh my gosh. So, Murphy and this other pilot also worked out a flying schedule so they could take turns bombing each other's side. So he would be like, all right, I'm going to fly here. I'm going to fly at this time and drop a bomb. When I land, then you can take off and drop a bomb on the Rebels. Uh And we'll just go back and forth. Hmm. They're very amicable with each other. Yeah, I'll say. For working for opposite sides. Yeah. Yeah. Murphy went back to the drawing board and created four more bombs with some adjustments and improvements, and then Murphy was ready for his next, bo- his next bomb runs. On his first run, Murphy was able to drop one of the bombs into a trench and killed two Federal soldiers. Murphy, feeling successful, took off on another bomb run with his remaining three bombs. All three bombs that Murphy dropped hit buildings causing damage. Unfortunately, Murphy had dropped the bombs in Naco, Arizona, and not Naco, Sonora. Oh, no. Making this the first aerial bombing on American soil. What? Yeah, preceding Pearl Harbor. Wow. The bombs hit a garage where a Mexican officer was storing his nice car, hoping that keeping it in America would keep it from being damaged. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) What a fluke. Yeah. The bombs also damaged a mercantile store, a pharmacy, and a U.S. post office, and caused the townspeople to run for their lives. Yeah, I can imagine. They're thinking, oh no, it's spilling over. Yeah. Luckily, the only casualties were minor injuries to a photographer and a reporter. These aren't very good bombs. No, yeah. Out of... Like, seven bombs that he's dropped, well, also, only he's two people he's, have like, died. Also, out of the plane. Yeah. So, like... I don't. Do you have a picture of these JN four planes? I don't. You hmm. could look it up. Yeah. So but I can't imagine like they're very. No, these are like the, like yeah, super like the really old fixed wing World War One planes that you like have in your mind, like no cover over your head. Yeah. He's yeah. literally just he's keeping his bombs in the back seat. Yeah, yeah. He has a cigar. Yeah. He lights the fuse, then drops it. And he's yeah. not a great bomb maker either, or <laughs> doesn't at least doesn't sound yeah, like yeah. it. Yeah. So they. Yeah. So they, I mean, I'm looking at a picture of these. Yeah. I mean, he. he it's not like he's getting up and going like walking around the cockpit. Like. No. He. There's no standing up on these planes unless you're standing up on the wings. Right. So he's literally just like. And he's probably even just being like, "Well, hope I got that one lit." Yeah. Exactly. Throwing it over. Yeah. So, wow. So, because the post office is a federal building, Murphy bombing it was a federal offense. Yep. The New York Times ran an article calling Murphy's bombing an incident that has created a tense international situation. Murphy didn't care, though. He was really unaware that he had just bombed America. He thought he had just bombed Mexico. And... You know, whether because he just didn't know where the border was, or he was drunk, or both, Murphy started flying loop-de-loops and other aerial tricks over the Federal Forces, kind of showing off, because he thought that he just bombed their buildings. Yeah. The Federal Forces had finally had enough of Murphy and aimed their guns at Murphy's plane. Murphy's plane was hit by Federal gunfire over 30 times. 
He was able to safely land his plane on the Mexican side of the border, but the plane was so badly damaged that he couldn't get it to take off again. For reasons unknown, the federal forces didn't go after Murphy when he landed, so Murphy decided to just hide out. <laughs> They're like, all right, that guy's out of the air. Yeah. That's, he was more of a nuisance than anything. Yeah. Then, yeah, he had, what, two two kills? Yeah. The two people in the trenches? Yeah, exactly. And just that a was bunch of damage to American soil. Yeah. So. Terrible. So because America had now been bombed, the United States sent two companies of Buffalo soldiers into Naco, Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. So if you want to learn more about Buffalo soldiers, you can listen to actually Jeremy's episode Yeah. on that when he talks about the company that rode bicycles. Yeah. The but bicycle Buffalo soldiers were African-American soldiers or African-American companies, mm-hmm. um, mostly filled with newly freed Slaves, slaves after the civil war yeah. so this is a little this is much later but, yeah, but this is still the same idea still the same idea the congress yeah it was a congressional act to create the buffalo or the all black regiments right so which one was it do you know uh i don't know i didn't write it down there was like six of them yeah and this was two of them the commander of the companies rode into Mexico, and he met with General Escobar and told him that in no uncertain terms the rebels would stop bombing the United States, or the next thing they would hear would be his bugler-sounding charge. <laughs> they were like, that wasn't us. Escobar's that like, I mean, us. I get it. Like, I, we didn't mean to. Yeah. I, it was actually your guy that bombed you. Yeah. <laughs> He's a real crappy navigator. Yeah. And then he made sure that Escobar understood that the Buffalo soldiers were on the border, prepared to cross over whenever he gave them the signal. (laughs) Besides Murphy's screw-ups, the battle at Naco was not going great for Escobar. It wasn't long after that that Escobar loaded up an airplane with looted gold and took off for America, (laughs) abandoning his war and his troops. After landing in America, Escobar was given asylum. Escobar never paid Murphy for the bombings. So <laughs> he gave him enough money to get gas and yeah. to make his bombs, and yeah. that was it. He's like, he all right, never... you get paid the other half when you finish Exactly. The yeah. yeah. So now that Escobar was in America and the rebel forces were defeated, Murphy began to worry that he would have to face a firing squad if he was caught in Mexico by federal forces. So he decided to try to sneak back into the United States. As soon as he crossed over the border... Murphy was picked up by American federal authorities and arrested for violating United States neutrality laws. Not even for bombing the U.S. Just for just for getting involved in a war that the U.S. was not involved in. Yeah. So, he was sent to Tucson jail, where he only stayed for a week before he was released. And then they just kind of dropped charges against him. Yeah, I think like, they were yeah, just like, were this is just week. Yeah. not worth it. They didn't know how to prosecute him, probably. Yeah. You're not a spy. You're not trying to get yeah. us into this war. You're just kind of a You're an entrepreneur. Drunk. <laughs> drunk entrepreneur. A drunk entrepreneur. There are some records showing that Murphy tried to get as far away from the Mexican border as possible and ended up in Canada, but nobody really knows. <laughs> so say. North Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. I think he went all the way to Canada. (laughs) He was just done with America at that point. Uh. 
In 2008, Arizona's official state balladeer Dolan Ellis wrote and recorded a song called The Bombing of Naco, which has one rating of five stars on Amazon Music. <laughs> Did you and listen to it? No, because I, all I saw was I looked it up on Amazon Music, and it was like 99 cents to buy the song, and I said, no, no I you. don't care enough <laughs> <laughs> to listen to that song. Well, maybe, maybe I'll see if I can buy it and put it with the YouTube video. There you go. <laughs> So that was the story of America's first, the first aerial bombing on American soil. Hmm. Yeah. My sources are how a possibly drunk American missed his target and is responsible for the first aerial bombing on U.S. soil by John Stanley. A legendary mistake. Arizona historians reflect on 1929 bombing of NACO by Emily Ellis. On this day, Irishmen carried out first aerial bombing on American soil by Pauline Murphy. Sierra Vista, Young City with a Past by Ethel Jackson Price. And the humble World War I biplane that helped launch commercial flight by Jordan Golson. Nice. That's great. I love, I love that. Thinking about Murphy and just being drunk, hanging out at a bar, and then like going over to Mexico being like, hey, General, why don't I just... Drop bombs from the sky on them. Yeah. He was like, that's a fantastic I idea. like where your head's at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, presidential trivia. Back to that. Who so, was it? The question was, who was the first president to call the White House the White House? And it was Theodore Roosevelt. Hmm. Not. George. No. So, uh, no, it took a while, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently... So George Washington never actually lived in the White House. Right, it was burned down or something, right? No, it was built after he was president. president. Yeah. And then it burned down and then... But anyways, so prior to Theodore Roosevelt calling it the White House, it was actually called the Executive Mansion or the President's House. Um, The White House first gained a lime-based whitewash in 1798 to protect the exterior from moisture and cracking during the cold winters in D.C. The term White House had been used occasionally by journalists, but it was never, that was never the official name of it. It was always lowercase White House. Yeah. So in 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt officially named the executive mansion the White House because... All of the governors, like the state governors, all of their mansions were called the executive mansions. And uh, he figured that the White House, the president's house, needed a more, more distinct name. Exclusive name. And he was like, well, what do we call it? Well, it's a White House, so let's just call it the White House. <laughs> Real original, Teddy. <laughs> yeah. He was always one for theatrics. <laughs> yeah. Real real creative oh, yeah. there. Probably took a long time to think about that one. Yeah, yeah. If you liked this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen so more people can find out about us and listen. If you would like to know more about our sources or look at merchandise or more about our topics, please go to americathebazaar.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com and search for America the Bazaar. And we just hope that you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.